You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Good morning, and it's good to be back in the pulpit after a few weeks out of the pulpit. And um, the last Sunday I preached was December 24th. And it was just before that that we had our last day of sunshine. And look outside, the sun's out again after about three and a half weeks, which is an incredible blessing to see daylight once again. But we'll be in Exodus chapter 20, and I'll read verses 1 through 21, continuing on in this series on the Ten Commandments. And we will continue in the Eighth Commandment this morning. I began the Eighth Commandment last time. Um, I was preaching, and or last time I was preaching on the Lord's Day at least, and, and we'll continue on in the Eighth Commandment today. But I'll read the Ten Commandments in their entirety, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant for, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you. The fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, how we are thankful for your law, which is wisdom and light to our path. And we are thankful for our Lord Jesus who forgives us our transgressions. We pray that as your law is opened and preached this morning that you would give us great wisdom that we might have direction and light for our lives, that you would bring about great conviction for our sins, and that you would point us to 
the love and mercy of Jesus, that we would rely upon him for the salvation of our souls. Would you anoint the hearing and preaching of your word this morning? And we are fully dependent upon your Holy Spirit to make the preaching of your word effectual. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Like I noted, we're back in the Ten Commandments this morning. And the Ten Commandments are God's natural law. They're the law of nature. I've said it before. This is the very constitution of reality. God has designed the world to operate in a certain way, ethically and morally speaking. And the Ten Commandments tell us how God has designed the world to work, ethically and morally speaking. And so if you want to operate and live within the context of reality, what you want to do is you want to live by what has been revealed in God's law. And the foundation of his law, the first principles of his law, are within the Ten Commandments. And so, what they become to us is a guide for life. They become our counselors. They speak to us when we are going about our way. And they, the wisdom imparted in them watches over us as we travel through this treacherous, sin-cursed world in which we live. And while the Ten Commandments provide light for our paths and wisdom for our way and counsel within our ears, they teach us what sin is and what righteousness is. And they do all of these things, which are wonderful. But there's one thing that the law of God is incapable of doing. The law of God cannot save you. It won't save you. The law of God points out your sin, it points out that you're a sinner, and it points out the fact that without Christ, you're hopelessly damned. And so, while the law of God cannot save you, the law of God teaches you about your need for Jesus Christ, the Savior. And so, as I'm preaching God's law this morning, and when you come under conviction of sin, which you should, because it bears your heart and it needles around within your conscience... When you come under conviction of sin, what you need to do is you need to fly immediately to Jesus Christ. And God promises that whoever comes to him by Christ, he will in no wise cast out. In fact, the scriptures say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so run to Jesus when you come under God's conviction as his law is preached and as it needles around in your heart this morning. I introduced the eighth commandment just before Christmas when I preached, and that is from Exodus 20, verse 15. It says, you shall not steal. That's the eighth commandment. I spent one Sunday introducing it and giving you just some general applications of the eighth commandment, and today, this Lord's Day, I will get on some more specific applications of the Eighth Commandment. I'll remind you what W.S. Plumer said of the Eighth Commandment. And he said that it regulates our labor, our buying, our selling, our expenditures, and our entire civil conduct. As I noted last time that I preached from God's law, the Ten Commandments, the Eighth Commandment specifically, 
This is, the Eighth Commandment, is God's economic policy for the state. What should the government's, if the government wants to operate within the context of reality and not strike out against nature itself, the Eighth Commandment will become the government's economic policy. But beyond it being the government's economic policy, it should be if they want to live in the real world, the Eighth Commandment should be your standard for wealth management. It regulates all of your financial affairs. This is the Eighth Commandment. So it's, we talk about the Eighth Commandment on the macro level as it's applied to law and statecraft. It protects private property. It limits the state's ability to tax and regulate. And it is the foundation for free enterprise and capitalism, all there within the Eighth Commandment. Now, some people will say that capitalism is founded on greed. That's what the communists say because they want to overthrow the free market. But capitalism in reality is founded upon the ethics of the Eighth Commandment. I am in charge of my property, and I am to use my property in a way that honors God, and that's true freedom. Freedom is, be is being able to use what God's given you for his honor and glory. And the Eighth Commandment regulates that. But that's the macro level. Today I want to talk more about the micro level, how it applies to you specifically. And how it applies to you specifically, so as you manage your own finances, is this. If we shouldn't steal from others, which we shouldn't, it's the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, we shouldn't steal from ourselves. Just like the commandment, you, you shall not murder, well, that means you shouldn't murder your neighbor, but it also means you shouldn't commit suicide, you shouldn't commit self-murder. And so we get to the Eighth Commandment, and the commandment is applied the same way. You shall not steal means you shall not steal from your neighbor, but it also means that you shall not steal from yourself, meaning you shouldn't squander your wealth, you shouldn't lose, use your wealth loosely, and if you want to look at the positive of that negative, so the negative is you shall not squander your wealth and you shall not waste your wealth, the positive of that is also true, which means you shall protect your wealth, and not just you shall protect your wealth, but you shall multiply your wealth. All of this is wrapped up within the principle of the Eighth Commandment. And as I talk about these multifaceted applications of the commandment, we have to go back, and I just want to remind you what one of Jesus' criticisms of the Pharisees was. What one of Jesus' criticisms of the Pharisees was what? that they understand the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. The letter, but not the spirit. Now, some people say, well, that means we have to feel our way through the law. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is talking about is when he tells us we need to go by the spirit of the law, is we need to understand that the law is multifaceted. There's an underlying principle. There's a principle that undergirds the you shall not. And that principle is God's view of private property, wealth, finances. And then so this principle now, yes, it's applied, you know, by the letter of the law, you shall not steal. That's the letter. 
But then the spirit of the law moves it even further so that it now affects the human heart. It even goes down to regulating your affections, your desires. All of this is regulated and caught up within this eighth commandment. So you get to the place of you shall not steal. Yeah, you're not allowed to take your neighbor's wealth unlawfully, steal it from him. You're not allowed to squander your wealth. And then beyond that, you must protect your wealth. And then if you really want to get into the positive aspect of this commandment, you should seek to multiply your wealth. That's the eighth commandment on the micro level. I remind you of what Edward Fisher said because I think he explains it really well. He says, explaining the eighth commandment, that is, thou shalt by no unlawful way or means hurt or hinder the wealth and outward estate either of thyself or others. So what's that? Don't steal, don't squander. That's what I'm talking about. And, and an affirmative part included in these words, but thou shalt by all good means preserve and further them both. So what's that? Protect your wealth and multiply your wealth. But not just multiply your wealth, but multiply the wealth of your neighbors. And how do you do that? Well, you have to be able to, as I'm going to get into my points in a minute, you have to be able to understand that there's a relationship in the, in the biblical economy, the natural economy, there's a relationship between private wealth and public wealth. And the relationship is, is that is private wealth is multiplied. It creates the buying power of private citizens, which then multiplies public wealth, which simply means it increases the value of the economy, or what people today call the GDP, the gross domestic product. And so your private wealth, as it is used properly, then increases the public wealth. When I talk about public wealth, I'm not talking about the state grabbing your money. I'm talking about the production of wealth within the private sector, as it's publicly used and traded by individuals and private citizens. And so you should seek to preserve not just your own private wealth, but the public wealth, which is the economy, protect the economy, and you should multiply, not just your private wealth, but as your private wealth is multiplied, it will in turn multiply the economy and increase the gross domestic product. So I'm going to apply all of this today. I'm going to get into this, and I'll give you three points today that will help us kind of sink our teeth into this teaching. And I'm going to take the Eighth Commandment and I'm going to apply it to your personal finances, your personal wealth. And I'm going to call you to preserve your wealth, build your wealth, and multiply your wealth. This is what the Eighth Commandment requires of you personally. And so my first point is going to be this. I'm going to define wealth. What is it? What am I talking about when I talk about wealth? What am I not talking about? What am I talking about? That's my first point. I'm going to define it. My second point is, I'm going to talk about developing wealth. How do we use it? How do we multiply it? How do we use our wealth? And then third, I'm going to talk about donating wealth. Whose wealth is it really? Because God lays claim to our wealth. So, defining, developing, donating. Defining, developing, donating. Really easy to memorize, three Ds. Let's talk about this first point. Defining wealth. What is wealth? What is wealth? What am I, when I'm talking about wealth, what am I talking about? What do I mean? And let me start by saying, discussing what I'm not talking about. There's certain things that I'm not talking about when I talk about wealth. 
And the first thing, and I'm talking about wealth, I'm talking about material wealth, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not talking about salvation in Jesus Christ. Right? I'm talking about managing material assets. And Proverbs 11 verse 4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So I'm distinguishing between material assets and righteousness. In other words, your wealth will be useless on the day of judgment. You could be filthy rich right now and go straight to hell, or you could be dirt poor right now and go straight to hell. Your wealth will mean nothing on the day of judgment. So I'm not talking about that. What you need to be wealthy spiritually is Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about spiritual wealth per se. I'm talking about material wealth. And when I talk about wealth, I'm also not talking about quality of life. You could be wealthy and have a poor quality of life. And you could be unwealthy and have a good quality of life. Or you could be wealthy and have a good quality of life and unwealthy and have a poor quality of life. I'm not talking about quality of life. I'll give you an example. Proverbs 15, verse 17. It says, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred within it. You know, you're better off to preserve the love and peace of your home and be poor, the Scripture is saying, than you are to um, create rancor and infighting within your home and be rich. So the, the Bible puts value on material wealth, but not, not supreme value, like our society seems to do on material wealth. The Bible does not put supreme value on it. So I'm not talking about quality of life. Proverbs 16, 18 says something similar. Or 16, verse 8, rather. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Now, this is talking about quality of life also. You'd rather live in a poor society where righteousness is upheld than a wicked society where injustice reigns. And, you know, what we live in right now is a society that possesses material wealth to a degree, but injustice is reigning. And what's happening is injustice reigns in our society is wealth is being depleted. Okay, so you're better off to live within the context of justice and not be wealthy than within the context of injustice and be wealthy. And this is the problem so often with election campaigns. When it's, well, it's all about the economy. Well, this just reveals the heart of the people. We want to make sure we have money, but we're okay with thousands of babies being butchered. You tell me what you think God thinks of that. We're okay with, we want money, but we're okay with celebrating sodomite marriage and little children being taught to um, self-mutilate in the name of transgenderism. But it's all about the economy, don't you know? Uh, well, this is, this is crazy. This is so against what God uh, teaches. And then Proverbs 17, verse 1 says, Better is a dry mor morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. And so what I'm not talking about when I talk about wealth is quality of life. You can have quality of life without wealth. And you can have wealth and not have quality of life. Wealth won't buy you love. Wealth won't buy you happiness. Wealth won't buy you health. Okay? Now, it can contribute to all of your... It can contribute to your quality of life. But there are certain things in life that have a higher priority than wealth. So that's not what I'm talking about. When I talk about wealth, what am I talking about? What am I talking about? As I 
seek to define it. And what I'm talking about is the ability to get your needs and your wants when you want them. So you have certain material needs. You need food, you need shelter, you need heat, right? Um, you need water. Those are your needs, and then you have wants. You want a feast with your families. You want to take a vacation with your family, right? You want to live a certain standard of living. These are your wants. Your needs are what you need to survive. Your wants are what you want to live in abundance. And wealth is the ability to acquire those things when you desire them. I'm hungry, therefore I, I need food. I'm, I'm cold, therefore I turn the heat on, right? It's dark and I can turn my light on. I need to get somewhere and therefore I can drive. This is wealth. It's the ability to get what you need or what you want. I, I, I could use a rest and a good time with my family and so I'm going to take a vacation and we're going to go away somewhere. That's a want. And so this is what wealth is. And, and the Bible essentially assumes that you can store this this value, the value, to the ability to, to get what you need or what you want, when you need it or when you want it, it assumes that you can store it within certain things. So it, typically in the Bible, it's stored, it's assumed that it's stored in gold or silver or precious metals or jewels. And those things store wealth. So wealth is stored within those things and then it's translated it's distributed in order to fulfill your needs or your wants um, when you want them. And that assumption is made throughout the Bible. And so I think we are, are foolish. I think we're foolish if we're going to equate having lots of cash with having lots of wealth. Now, cash can translate into needs or wants quickly. That's true. But because our cash system used to be backed up by gold, and now it is no longer backed up by gold, the only value that our cash system right now has is the perceived value that people give to it. So it's got no real value, whereas gold or silver or jewels do have real value stored up in them. But the cash system right now, and because if, like if you have a bunch of cash, that's not necessarily wealth because as you end up in inflationary times, you start to lose your, your cash becomes less powerful. So yes, cash can translate into purchasing power, and yes, it is useful, but it is not valuable any more than people attach value to it, and as people lose confidence in our currency, we might run into some big problems. So don't equate it necessarily with currency. Wealth is the ability to get the needs and wants when you need and want them. That's what wealth is. That's what I'm saying wealth is. That's, that's how I'm defining it. There's a bunch of things that is not, that are more important than wealth. I've talked about those. It's not salvation. It's not standard of living. Okay, it's not quality of life. There's a bunch of things that people think are wealth, and cash is one of them. But what wealth really is, is the ability to get what you need or want when you need or want it. And this is what I'm talking about. Um, what, and, then, and then you store it in whatever item that you want to store it in. You can store it in land, you can store it in gold, you can store it um, on the stock market. And yeah, you can store it on cash. 
And some of these are things that are more reliable than others and more stable than others, but there's ways to store this value. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about wealth. Material wealth is what I'm speaking of specifically. So now let's move on to my second point, as I've, as I've defined this. And what I want to talk about secondly is developing wealth, right? So how are we to use it? How are we to use wealth? If God gives us the ability to acquire material possessions and the ability to use wealth, how should we be going about using it? And wealth, first of all, if you look at scripture, it should be acquired and it should be multiplied. Now some might be tempted to say, okay, I'm going to acquire wealth. But because these are crazy times in which we live, I'm going to go buy some silver and just bury it in my backyard and wait for the whole thing to come down. Or put it in a safety deposit box somewhere and I'm going to wait for the whole deck of cards to collapse. And then I'm going to be okay. Well, this isn't necessarily the scriptural view because the scriptural view is, yes, you're to acquire wealth, but then you're supposed to take the wealth that you've acquired and you're supposed to multiply it. And invest it in um, business ventures or in production or in education that will multiply wealth further or in the acquisition of skills. And this is what you're supposed to be doing with your wealth over and over again. And I know this because Jesus talked about it actually in Matthew chapter 25. And in Matthew chapter 25, I'm not going to read the parable, but it's the parable of the talents. And Jesus says there's, there's a few men that were given some talents. The, the talents represent coins. And, and one man really multiplied it. Another man kind of multiplied it. And then a third man just went and buried it in the ground. And he just kept it. And then when the judge came back, the one guy that had multiplied his wealth, he received even more. And the other guy that multiplied his wealth received even more. But the guy that buried his wealth, he was essentially punished and thrown into hell. And Jesus said, you should have at least put in a savings account and gained some interest. And so the point of telling that is that Jesus expects us to multiply what God has given us. And so when you're given wealth, you have the opportunity to do a few things with it. As I talk about, um, as I talk about how to use it, how to use wealth. You can what? Like, say you're given 50 bucks. All right, I'll just give you an example. You're given 50 bucks, and you've got basically three options of what to do with that $50. One, you could squander the $50 so there's no real re long-term reward for it. Spend the $50, and you go to the movies, and you buy popcorn and a bottle of Coke and a pack of Smarties, and your $50 is now gone. There's no nutritional value in the food. There's no real value in the movie. Um, and you just went out and you got, you know, an hour and a half of what you consider fun, but it's $50 wasted, right? So that's, that's one thing you could do with your $50, is you could squander it, and there's no return on it. The other thing you could do with your $50, the third thing you could do, is you could take your $50 bill and you could put it in a safe and then bury the safe in the ground and say, I'm going to come back later when I really need this, and I'm going to get my $50, or you could put the $50 in your bank, in, in the savings account, and it could sit there, and it, it actually, you wouldn't even keep your $50, you would lose your $50 because of inflation. It wouldn't be worth $50 uh, 
for very long. You know, in a few years, it's worth $40 today, right? Or you could buy silver or gold or something and store that. So there's the second thing you could do with it. The third thing that you could do, the first thing is you could squander it on entertainment or something like that that is no value. The second thing you could do is you could bury it or store it somewhere. And the third thing you could do is you could multiply it. So you could say, okay, I got $50. I, I could go out and I can buy an apple tree for $50. I'm going to take that apple tree, I'm going to plant it in my yard, and I'm going to nurture this apple tree. And then in a few years, this apple tree is going to produce apples. And I can take some of those apples and I can sell them and make even more money off of them. Or I can take some of those apples and I can put them in the ground and I can have 10 apple trees in 15 years. And then I can sell those apples. And then now all of a sudden my $50 has multiplied. Right? So what, what I'm trying to say is there's different ways to use the money that God gives you. One is you could squander it. Two is you can store it. Or three is you can multiply it. And we live in a generation that sometimes stores it, but more times than not, squanders it. It's a consumer generation. So there's different things you can do with your money. You can consume with it, or you can produce with it. And we live in a, not a productive generation, but a consumer generation. And so before you, get, you know, you got money, and you get your paycheck, and the government takes their bet, and you know, you've got to pay your mortgage or whatever else. And, and just think about, okay, this money that I'm getting, how am I going to use it? Am I A, I don't think there's, other than those three things, I don't think there's anything you can do with it. I'm going to squander it, I'm going to store it, or I'm going to multiply it, or at least try to multiply it. Well, what am I going to do with, you know, you, you get your paycheck after you've worked for two weeks, there it is, it's in your bank account, and you, and you get the money and it's sitting there, Ask yourself, what am I going to do with my money? Squander it? Multiply it? Or store it? Now, I think there's some value in storing some wealth for a rainy day. The Bible talks about that. And so you'll probably want to store some of it in case the car breaks down or the, um, you, know, you need to get a, a new toilet in your house or something like this happens and some repairs that need to happen. You got a leak or whatever you got to store some of it. And then some of your wealth, you have to spend on things that there's not a huge... Re I mean, you got to have clothes to wear. So there's, your, your clothes aren't exactly multiplying your wealth. But at the same time, if you don't have clothes, you're not going to be able to multiply your wealth. Right? And, and your food isn't exactly multiplying your wealth. You're simply consuming it. But at the same time, if you don't eat, you're not going to be able to multiply your wealth. So you have to be able to, you know, find some balance here. But you got to be asking these three questions. What am I doing with it? Am I squandering it? Am I saving it? Hiding it? Or am I multiplying it? And one of the ways that you can multiply it is you can invest in businesses. Some of you are doing that, and there seems to be amongst a lot of you a real entrepreneurial spirit within um, the church, and I think that's a wonderful thing. That's, that's not commanded in Scripture, but I think it's commended in Scripture, is to be entrepreneurs and take your money and invest it in business, or you can invest it in somebody else's business, somebody else's business venture, and you say, hey, that's a really profitable business venture. I think this guy has a, a really good idea that he's going to do, and I want to take my money and invest it in that, and then eventually, when time comes, I'll get a return on it. So there's a way you can multiply your money. Or another way that you can multiply your money is investing in skills. So you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to invest in 
and $15,000 in, edu- in education. And I anticipate that when I finished my education, I'm going to make an extra fifteen dollars to $20,000 a year. So it's a, it's a two-year investment of $15,000, but when I'm done my education, I'm going to improve myself so much with skills that I'm going to make an extra fifteen dollars to $20,000 a year so that your investment pays off. Right? But there's different ways to do this. But the question is, is what are you doing with your money? Are you investing it? Are you hiding it? Or are you squandering it? And really, our resources should be invested for multiplication. Another way that you can invest your money, and I think this is something that Christians, or not Christians, maybe hopefully not, a lot of people miss, is, is we're not just concerned about multiplication right now, but we're concerned about future multiplication, long-term, like 100 years, 150 years long-term. So one of the ways that you long-term multiply resources is by having children and investing in them. Right? So if I have six kids, which I do, and let's say I, you know, I do everything I can to nurture them, raise them properly, and God blesses my efforts, and then what happens is they grow up, and they're now six productive adults, and then what's happened is my efforts have now been multiplied sixfold. And let's say each one of them has six children. So now, now my efforts have been multiplied six plus 36-fold right? 42-fold. And so one of the ways that you should be seeing multiplication is, is through your own offspring. Because it's not just about multiplying your wealth, it's actually about multiplying wealth for the long term for the kingdom of God. And if you're investing in your children, that's a great way to multiply. But we live in a society of consumers. And in a society of consumers, these are people, consumption is depleting wealth, so I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but because we're a pleasure-seeking generation, you know, this is, this is where we live. It's, it's about the depletion of wealth. People get money, what do they want to do? Go to the bar. Get a high. It's all about me. I want to live for me, 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 me. And so there's a lot of industries that simply consume, and there's no return value on it. And this, by the way, is what gambling does. I think this is going to become, or is becoming, a big problem. You know, people go, they buy... I said to someone the other day, what's, what's the lottery? I'm going to go play the lottery. That's how I'm going to get ready. What's the lottery? You know what it is? It's a tax on stupid. That's all it is. I'm going to go to the corner store. I'm going to give the government some money. And I, I, you know, I have a one in 10 million chance of, of winning the lottery. So all it is is you're letting the government tax your stupidity. That's all you're doing. But it's not just a tax on stupid. It's greed. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to multiply wealth by nothing. And you're trying to multiply wealth by somebody else's loss because everybody else that contributes to the lottery, they're not getting anything out of it. So it's not really um, a, a love your neighbor economy at that point in time. I'm putting some money in the pool and then everyone else but me is going to lose. That's what gambling is. And so that's, that's not a legitimate means of investing your money. This is a consumer generation. And what does the consumer generation want? It doesn't want to build wealth over the long term. It doesn't want to build production over the long term. It's a generation that wants to consume now with no thinking 10, 15, 20, 100, 150 years down the road. Most of our government policies, I submit to you, are basically thinking four years down the road. How can I get elected next time? Not what's going to benefit my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, my great-great-grandkids, but what is going to get me elected next time around? And most people want to vote for that. How can I get a quick fix on this? No foresight, no thinking. 
And so what we need to be concerned about is the production and multiplication of wealth. And the only way to reverse the trends that we're seeing right now is for you and I to take ownership over it. I'm going to, you know, you, you have to say, I'm going to manage my money differently than my neighbors manage their money. And not only am I going to manage my money differently than the way my neighbors manage their money, but I'm going to teach my children to manage their money different than my neighbors manage their money. And part of my job in teaching my children is giving them some type of head start by teaching them the morals and ethics and self-discipline around all of this, but not just money, but all of life, and then doing what I can to try and get them ahead. And when I see that they are capable of handling it, investing in you know, any enterprise that they might go out on. You know, not just throwing money into a hole because that's our job as parents, no, but actually thinking, okay, are my kids ready for this? And when you sense that they're ready for it, then investing in what you have the ability to invest in. But most people equate loving their children with buying them a whole bunch of junk that's made in China, right? And that it ends up in the garbage can in 12, year, 12 months. And someone goes around, oh, well, it made, it made someone that owns a factory in China rich, but did nothing to profit our society. It's just consumption. Right? Goes in the recycling bin. And, and so that's not, that's not loving your children. It's not just buying them a whole bunch of junk that's made in China or Taiwan or Vietnam or wherever it is that it's made. It's actually teaching them value and multiplication and skills and self-discipline. And when they are starting to embody these things, if they can handle it, invest in those things materially. All right, so let's just give you, I'll give you just a few quick principles here before I move on to my next point on what the Bible talks about or what the Bible has to say about productivity. And there's a few, um, there's a few principles that are involved in productivity and multiplication that I'm just going to list very quickly. And the first principle that I want to note is I talk about developing your wealth and using your wealth and multiplying your wealth is that the Bible expects us to work diligently. Proverbs 10, verse 4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. What's diligently? You just work and work and work, and then eventually a return comes, right? You just eventually the return comes. It's one of the things my dad always told me. He says, if you, if you, if you, just, if you get good at something and you work hard at it, eventually the opportunities come your way, Right? And so this is what you do. What is your skill? What have you learned to do? What is your trade? What, what do you know that can benefit other people? And, and once you develop that and then you work it over time, this is how wealth is generated. It's through diligence. But not just through diligence, but by looking for opportunity while you're being diligent. Proverbs 10 verse 4 says, he who gathers in the summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in the harvest is a son who brings shame. So the, the prudent man... He diligently works, yes, but he knows the difference between summertime and wintertime. Summertime is opportunity. You make hay when the sun shines. Okay? So you're able to tell the difference between opportunity and not opportunity. When is my skill and my diligence and my ability, when is it going to make me a profit? And when I see that profit comes, I go, jump on it. So... You, work, you look for opportunity, you work diligently, and you focus on what's before you. Proverbs 12, verse 11. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. You know, there's people out there, and maybe in here, who are dreamers. 
I'm right, dreamer. I'm going to have my castle on the hill. And, I'm, and they just chase this, chase that, chase everything. And they're, all they're looking for is the quick fix, the quick hit, the quick way to make money. And what the, what the text of Scripture is, is teaching us is, look, focus on what your parents have given you. Focus on the opportunities you have in front of you. Focus on what's needed within your community, the skills that are available for you to learn, what your abilities are. Bring all of these things together as they're directed by providence, and then multiply them diligently and look for the opportunity. That's what we need to be doing. Submit to your lot in life, in other words. And once you learn to submit to your lot in life, it creates a level of delight and pleasure in your work. And then finally, as I talk about multiplying wealth and, and protecting it, we, we practice delayed gratification. Proverbs 13:11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. You know, people want to get rich quick, and that's why they do the, the tax on stupid, which is the lottery. And they go to the casinos, and they play the slot machines, or they go to the horse races, and they squander away their money. Well, well look, wealth gained hastily, you know what? It has wings, and it just flies away. Right? It, it, it flies, and it's gone. You never see it again. But it's the, it's the person who slowly, diligently acquires wealth over time by multiplying his trade and plying his trade this is the person that prospers according to the Bible. You work diligently, you look for opportunity, you focus on what's before you, and you practice delayed gratification. This is biblical principles for wealth management. And you gotta remember, like, as you look at the Bible, and as you look at life, God providentially orders things, so not everybody ends up with the same amount of wealth. Some people are gonna be uber rich, and some people are gonna be able to provide a decent living. And you simply have to trust God in that. And say, I'll, you know what, I'm going to work as hard as I can at my skill. I'm going to take advantage of the opportunities that God puts in front of me. And I'm going to apply my trade. And if God leads me into great wealth, then I'm going to pray for grace to management. And if God gives me the ability to simply take care of my family, I'm going to be content in that. Right? The, the, only, the only job you should be ashamed of is the job poorly done. That's the only job you should be ashamed of. There's value attached to all work. All work, there's value attached to. And so, there's a, and, and, and as I move on to my next point, I've, what I've done now is I've defined wealth, and now I've talked about developing wealth, and I'm going to move on to my next point in just a moment, but I, I want to say this, that multiplying wealth, I said it earlier, it's not just about multiplying your own wealth, but it's about multiplying the public wealth over the long term. The increasing the public good, the value of the public. And that comes by investing in institutions that multiply wealth. What do I mean by that? Well, let me explain to me what I mean. There is a link between godly living and productivity. So why do we live in a consumer generation? Because it's a godless generation. But could you imagine how prosperous the public wealth would be if everyone simply applied the principles that I'm preaching in this sermon? Could you imagine the society in which we lived? Everyone took these principles and they just applied them to all of life. You know, things would multiply. And so this is a long-term project. And so part of multiplying wealth is investing in institutions that are teaching people 
to live a holy life. So what's that include? If you want to multiply wealth long term, you should be investing in churches that teach people how to live holy lives. You should be investing, I believe, in the, the best model for education, I believe, is, and this is why we've invested it in as a church, is classical Christian education. This is, this is how the West, especially the English-speaking West, was educated for generations until the liberals took over the education system. And this is how we got prosperous. So if you want long-term prosperity, not stuff that you're going to taste right away, but stuff that your grandchildren and great-grandchildren can taste, what you ought to be doing is investing in churches, investing in Christian education, and investing, I believe, in Christian publishing. Good Christian publishing, not the health wealth garbage. Right? That's just, that's nonsense. That's just paganism. But solid doctrinal biblical teaching. And shaping the hearts and the morals of a future generation. And what that does, when you shape the hearts and the morals of a future generation, what happens is, is you produce producers. And so God's people ought to be concerned about producing producers. And in producing producers and investing in institutions that produce producers, you will multiply wealth, not next year, but next generation, and the generation after that. And with that, I want to get to my final point. I've talked about, I've defined wealth, I've talked about developing wealth, now I want to talk about donating wealth. This is an important part of scriptural teaching, donating wealth. Who owns your wealth? Donating wealth. So this is my final point, donating wealth. This is a very serious topic as we look at the scriptures. And the reality is, is God owns our wealth. He owns your wealth, he owns my wealth, he owns the church's wealth, he owns the public wealth, he owns the government's wealth, he owns the wealth. And God claims ownership by commanding voluntary giving. So I'll give you a few Bible verses where it indicates that God claims ownership. Proverbs 50, or sorry, Psalm 50, verse 10 to 11 it says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Everything's God's. He claims it all. Then 1 Corinthians 10 verse 26 also says, um, the earth is the Lord's in fullness thereof. So when we, when we talk about property rights and your own ownership, we can't be absolutists. But we, we can't be absolutists. And what I mean is that our rights to our own private property, it's, it, what it means is it's not my right to do what I want with it. It's my right to use my property the way God intended it. There's a difference. And this is where we get confused with the libertarian movement. The libertarian movement thinks that, you know, having private property means I get to do whatever the heck I want with it. But the biblical view, the Eighth Commandment view of property rights is that means that I have the right to do what God wants me to do with it. And this is, what I'm, this is when I get into the whole topic of giving. And as we consider giving, what you need to do is you need to consider using your property, your private property, your wealth, in part by donating a part of it to contribute to the ministry of God's Word and to the relief of the poor. This is basic Christian teaching. Now, so what I'm going to do for just a minute here is I talk about donating wealth and who owns your wealth and asserting that God owns all of our wealth. He owns everything. I'm going to give you a little brief 
overview of the Old Testament teaching on tithing, and then I'm going to make application to New Testament times. A brief overview. And as you look at the Old Testament and the tithing system in the Old Testament, there's three different tithes in the Old Testament. And if you add them all up together, you get about 22% tithing on all increases. That's Old Testament. And so I'll give you, I'll, tell, I'll explain to you what the tithing was. And by the way, tithing in the Old Testament was taxation. You say, oh, that's a lot of money. No, well, that was, that was their tax system. The tax system was their tithe system. So there was no sales tax. There's no property tax. There was no, tithing was the income tax, okay? There's no EI or any of this stuff. It's just simply the tithe. And so the first tithe that they had in the Old Testament was the institutional tithe. And this was essentially the tithe to the church. And it went towards education. It went towards worship. And the temple, or they were involved also in law enforcement and the judiciary. And that was a 10% of the increase, an increase on your, your, um, your net gains over the year. Whatever you netted that year, uh, that was what you tithed on, 10%. So you would never tithe out of what you didn't have. You tithed out what you did have. And so that would go towards institutions, institutional worship, education, law enforcement, and the judiciary. And then the second tithe was the festivities tithe. And the festivities tithe was you would give 10% of your tithe to feasting and joy and celebration. So every year, the people would go down to Jerusalem, and they would celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles, and they were to use 10% of their money, their gains, their increase, their net gains, they were to use 10% of it for feasting. And so all the families would get together, you know, there'd be singing, there'd be dancing, there, you'd kill the fattened calf, and 10% of your money went to feasting, because God values joy. And he values celebration, and he values thanksgiving, and part of having money is enjoying your money. And one of the things that we're not supposed to feel guilty, that's not, yeah, I've talked about squandering your money, that's not squandering your money. That's drawing people together over a meal, that's drawing people together over a celebration, that's drawing people together over dancing, this is festivities. 10% of, of the net would go to festivities every year, where the people would go down to Jerusalem and then they would party. And they'd have a great time, and each family got to decide how they would spend the money. You know, one family likes this cut of beef, the other family likes this cut of beef, and that's how they would spend it. One family prefers this type of wine, another family prefers this type of wine, and then they would spend it on that, 10%. So that, that brings you up to about 20%. And then you had the poverty tithe. And the poverty tithe was given to the real poor, not the fake poor, the real poor, the widows and the orphans. And that would have been 10% of the yearly increase on the third year. And so you'd work a year, you wouldn't tithe on this. You'd work another year, you wouldn't tithe on this. And then you get to the third year, and 10% of your net on the third year would go to the relief of the poor. And so you add up these three tithes, and you end up with about 22% over the three-year period that you're tithing on, 23%. And that's your tax system. That's your giving to your church system. That's your festivity system, okay? The, the recreation is the festivities. And so... The question that I have to ask as I get to the New Testament period is, first of all, the New Testament doesn't tell you how much you're supposed to give. It tells you you're simply supposed to give generously. And so as you consider giving to the church, I want to go back to the tithing system in a minute, but I want to come with one question before I go into all of this, and I talk about giving to the church and giving to Christian institutions that have value in them. Do you give... 
the amount of money to the church that corresponds with the value that the church is to your family. Think about that. So if, if this church, or if the church didn't exist, and it, and it didn't exist, how much money would you be willing to pay in order to make it exist, is, is what I'm asking. And so what value number corresponds to the life of the church in the life of your family? And I think that's something that you should consider because the church giving is voluntary. It's, it's between you and the Lord. It says, the Bible says give generously. The Bible says give joyfully. We have this Old Testament tithing system. And so if I want to comment on the tithing system, what I would say is that that's what you have as a baseline, I believe. You have that principle. And if you want an actual number, I don't think, you know, we can come up with a better number than the 10% tithe in the Old Testament. But what I can say is this, if, if, if you want to know how much you should be giving, you've got to ask the question, the value that the church contributes to your home and your family and your life, does the amount that you give to it correspond with that value? All right? So that's a question to ask yourself. And as you consider giving to the church, because what you're doing and are giving to Christian education, which I think we should be doing, or giving to other Christian institutions that, 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 are, chari- that, that are charity, they don't, no, they, they really, they're not just charity in the sense that they eat up money, but they actually do multiply because over time, righteous living will multiply wealth, not the quick health wealth stuff, but over time, as people employ biblical principles, the wealth of the individuals and the wealth of the community will increase. So over time, proper Christian teaching will multiply wealth. So it's not just charity that's eating up wealth, but it's charity that is being used to multiply wealth over the long time. And as you consider giving... I want to make one final point before I wrap all of this up, and I kind of land the plane on giving. And that is this. You and I, we can sit around and we can complain about how the government steals from us. And, and, and that's something that is, might be a favorite pastime of yours, right? They steal my EI, they steal my CPP, they steal my income tax, both provincially and federally. And then I have to pay HST, and even the people that produce the products pay HST. Then I pay HST on that. Then I pay property tax. Then if I want to sell my property, I, I, pay, I pay land transfer tax. And if I sell a property that I don't live on, then I pay capital gains tax. And, I mean, it, it's just way beyond this 22% system that we're looking at in the Old Testament. It's, it's ludicrous. And then you've got to pay for the services that the government offers you that you're already taxed on to support. I want to go get my new my license plate renewed. I got to get my driver's license renewed. I got to go get my passport. I got to go stand in line and probably be treated by some miserable person like I'm just some type of subservient serf here. And then I got to pay the money to support a system that I've already been taxed to support. So, so like we can, we can, do you want to complain about this? Right? Here, here's, the, here's the thing. They're stealing from us. But we have no right to bring our complaints to God about the government's theft from us if we're stealing from God. That's what I'm trying to drive at here. And if you look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 7, 11, or 7 through 11, it teaches us that if you don't tithe, you're stealing from God. If you don't give to God, you're essentially stealing from Him. So Malachi chapter 3, verse 7 says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside... From my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? 
Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. They were withholding their tithes. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test as the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the window of heaven for you and pour down you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. So you see a little in verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer. So, so what happens is you could plant a field, you plant corn, or you could plant apple trees, or you plant potatoes, or you could try and grow cattle, raise cattle, and, or chickens, and, and what could happen is, is the pestilence could come down and, and it could destroy your crop. That's the devourer. Or, or, the, ca- or the, cattle, the cattle wouldn't give birth, or the cattle would miscarry, or the cattle would die and they'd be stricken with disease. That's the devourer in the context of the Old Testament. I... I believe today that the devourer, yes, there's all kinds of advancements that have protected us from that stuff, that the biggest devourer that we have right now is the government. They are the devourer. That is the parasite that is wrecking the increase. But what does God say here? By voluntarily giving and returning to the Lord a tithe, he will curse the devourer. When did this massive taxation scheme start in this country? It started when the churches stopped giving to the poor, and the churches stopped building the hospitals, and the churches stopped providing the education system. And all of that relied on the tithes of the people. And so if you want to fight this massive institution of antichrist that reigns over us, we have to build Christian institutions together. Otherwise, they're the ones that are eating away at the middle in order to provide the leftovers. And we're going to provide the needs. We're going to give the people with it. We're going to be the heroes of the day. But in order to fight this, you have to build something else. And then we have to trust that is over time, generations, as God's people learn to give and God's people learn to give uh, institutionally and build institutions together, then God himself will destroy the devourer so the devourer won't be destroying our fruits. But we have no ability is God's people. We have no ability to go to God and complain about a government that steals from us if we are stealing from God. None. You think God's going to listen to that? Oh, they're stealing my, my salary every day with this tax and this task and that, and that fee and that fee and this regulation and that regulation. They're ripping me off. And then you go to God, well, you're stealing from me. It says right here in Malachi chapter 3. And so we can complain about the government all we want, But if we're not honoring the Lord with the first fruits of our increase and using our money to build Christian institutions and Christian churches and Christian education, then I can't see why God would listen to us. Proverbs 3, verse 9 to 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Or Proverbs 11.24 says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers wants, want. And then Proverbs 19, verse 17 says, Proverbs 19, verse 17, Whoever is generous to the poor lends the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. 
And so we should be giving. You should be giving regularly. And when you give regularly, you're saying you trust in God, and what you're doing is you're saying, I don't own my wealth. God owns it. These are not my assets. These are God's assets. And I am going to trust him with it. And so what I've done here is I've defined wealth. This is what it is. I've talked about developing wealth, how to use it. And I've talked about donating wealth. Who owns it? Donating wealth is simply a proclamation that it's not mine. It belongs to the Lord. Everything we have belongs to the Lord. And we should believe that enough to let him be our ultimate money manager. And as we talk about the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. That includes understanding what wealth is. That includes developing our own wealth. And that includes not stealing from God. Let's have prayer together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And he is the one who owns the cattle on the thousand hills. He is the one who owns it all. And so we pray you would deliver us from the devourer. And we pray that you would teach us to use and steward and manage and give our wealth properly. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.